0: Uh first of all uh, the question is what are we going to call this podcast what is the name of this podcast Sophie's idea was uh leaves of ass no <laughs> no no okay her other
1: idea was can't stanza <laughs> That's a pretty good one. I like that one. <laughs> Maybe it's a, a better ti- it's a better title, but none of us are like stand up guys and it sounds like yeah, it sounds like a true. very like, like what
0: is your idea for the name? Okay
1: though? I no I don't I think that not fit for composition is like is way better than those three just by being wow. more neutral well okay because
0: i I mean that's the one i originally wanted to go with but
1: then i got dissuaded from it because a bunch of people were telling me it was bad i I don't think it's bad (laughs) it doesn't have like a catch but i don't i don't know if we need the gimmick title and yeah maybe you're like the one the the one i like the most that you just said the stanza one that That sounds like it's way more like um supposed to be explicitly like now we're gonna make a joke right um right is yeah. this not is this not going to be a comedy podcast? i mean this pod? <laughs> it'll be weird. it's not like it's, it's mean, not it's comedy but it's not like comedy guy which is <laughs> true we're just, we're just, yeah which is what i i guess the distinction i was making That's true. I think this whole discussion, except for the parts where I cut
0: out you talking about people that you hate, will be a really good intro to the first episode. Like, maybe the first episode just starts with us talking about the name of the podcast. I mean,
2: I feel like we should just cut to the chase and name it, Who Cares About Poetry.
0: Who cares about poetry? That's pretty good. I do like that. Well, you know, whatever we end up naming it, at by the time this episode is out, the name will be solidified. And so it'll be, you know, it, yeah. it's kind of a moot point to everyone who's listening. So yeah. I just want to say uh, thank you both for uh, taking some time for this endeavor. We've been trying to do this for a little while now. And if this goes poorly, uh, my idea is that we can just bury it and never talk about it again. You know, <laughs> uh, I'm going to edit out any bad jokes or anything weird that happens. Okay. And, uh, You know, I think in the end of the day, we're just making this for our friends, and we all have fun and exciting things to say, and the delusion that maybe our words matter and that people want to hear what we have to say. So maybe we're perfect for a podcast.
2: I have no delusion that anyone thinks I have anything to say.
1: Yeah. (laughs) That's fair. Maybe it's just me. No, no, I think I could probably, (laughs) no, I could already... uh, articulated better but i don't think any of us are under the illusion that like most people read and when they do they read like um b- memoirs by people who are on the office or something they don't read poetry or <laughs> <laughs> i i mean i, mean, honestly, like,
2: I feel like <laughs> i feel like a lot of the poetry we're gonna talk about on here a lot of people like so <laughs> Okay. Who am I to say what is what is good and what is bad? Because obviously a lot of these people have sold a lot of books. So that, that is, that's it true. It doesn't even really
0: matter at the end of the day. That's true. Okay, if I had written theme music, I would cue the theme music right now. But we but maybe after we record it I'll be like cue cue the the music. music. Boom. Boom. Thank you for listening to uh, the first episode, the test pilot episode of our podcast has yet to be named. Uh, I'm the host. Uh, my name is August Smith, uh, and with me, I have two of my very best friends and co-hosts here. I have uh, Eleanor Eli Moss here in the studio with me. Eleanor, how are you?
2: I'm doing okay. Um, I've never recorded a podcast before, so I'm a little nervous, but yeah, it feels yeah. odd. Yeah, fuck it. I've had three beers. Oh, shit. Can we swear? (laughs)
0: Yeah, we can swear. We can swear as much as we like. This is fine. You know, maybe my parents will listen, but that's okay.
2: I wasn't sure what the vibe was, but... Yeah, Yeah, I can't
0: swear. I'm going to be in trouble. We're not trying to syndicate this on public television, so that's fine. (laughs) And then the other co-host here is uh, Marcus Corey calling in from Queens,
1: my good friend Marcus. Marcus, how was your day? It could have been better. It could have been worse. I'm here in a... basement studio, um, that actually wasn't too much of a setup considering I have a miscellaneous recording equipment lying around here in any case. Yeah, I feel like your house is mostly, like, raw meat
0: in the fridge and then, like, recording equipment and, like, a pretty Spartan (laughs) setup as far as furniture goes, if I remember correctly.
1: Spartan is charitable. I'll take it.
0: (laughs) Uh, So, I wanted, since this is the first episode, I wanted to, like, obviously, we've talked about the title. I wanted to talk about the origins and also my visions for this podcast and what it could be. Um, So, as far as the origins go, Marcus... Uh, this was about four months ago, I think. You said to me that, and I quote almost directly, that it is toxic that I don't have a
1: podcast. Uh, do you remember why you said this? Probably because I had something that I thought was witty, but as I echo to you in different iterations, like once a month, I, I'm i a low-key person without any social lar- like social media presence, really, aside from people who know me really well so if I have a good idea I'm just like oh, isn't it a shame Rags who's (laughs) who's the most charismatic and the best face for like voicing ideas or witty things I might say that he doesn't have a a bigger platform other than his Twitter which is far larger than uh uh any of my any of my presences online or elsewhere
0: that's true. But I, I want to say specifically, you said you wish you had a, a you you want you said it was toxic because I, that I didn't have a podcast because a I would I was your friend who was most likely to have a podcast, which I agree with. And B, because you didn't have a place to talk about uh, Napoleon in a public capacity. Could you explain,
1: <laughs> you explain what why what that uh, means? Can I explain what it, what it means? um that maybe i came to a napoleon fixation prior to whatever the popular movie is i don't know the guy who made gladiators making a napoleon movie so yeah, yeah, prior yeah. to that but after one might think for someone who's like whatever done formal study about like academic study about french history and stuff um and that i had told uh, your girlfriend i had told rayleigh that i ate podcasts and i think they suck because everyone's inarticulate and the audio quality is always leaves something to be desired but the the napoleon podcast that you directed me to i think at least has has merits and it made me reevaluate um reevaluate podcasting in general so i felt more favorable after you showed me that um Napoleon podcast and I mean to date probably for the last 18 months I've um been on a um, Napoleon wave
0: yeah yeah definitely and I feel like you know within our personal discord you've been talking about like this day in Napoleon history and stuff so I want to say at the end of this episode and we can just splice it in if you don't have anything prepared but at the end of this episode I do want to give you like a Napoleon minute where you can just go, go off and just you know say <laughs> you know get that out of your system, right <laughs> okay uh, and then eleanor uh you and i know each other through poetry things um uh, mm-hmm. uh maybe maybe you can explain uh, without um giving too much detail about how we know each other <laughs> <laughs> uh i mean we
2: basically just met each other on tumblr uh back in
0: like wow do we meet the tumblr i thought we met yeah. on twitter
2: um i'm pretty sure it was tumblr at least for a little bit that's where i first saw you uh okay because i started off just posting stuff on tumblr and yeah. then like i don't know when exactly we all decided but there was like an unspoken thing that like all the tumblr posts just moved to twitter eventually i think it was in like 2013 2014 uh and so after i started posting more on twitter we kind of started interacting more
0: wow yeah and then I moved to Austin and then we became friends because we worked at a bookstore together
2: yeah it was uh, it was pretty nice I I do remember the night you moved uh, or the night you got here there was a big party and That's we right. at that party and we played yeah it. what was it what was that game wine bag? bago yeah where we threw the bag of wine around
0: until it broke <laughs> that was yeah so I've bought You here, because you've been within the poetry world with me for quite some time, both like in a direct way and indirect way. And I bring um, Marcus here because um, Marcus, you've also been with me on the poetry journey for quite some time. Um, Maybe you can speak to some of that. because yeah. i've just involved you in a lot of it i feel like i'm yeah. forced you to do it no, I,
1: I don't consider myself having been shanghaied into it at all it's always been out of my own volition <laughs> and um in a self-aggrandizing turn of phrase i am just been a fellow traveler uh, <laughs> uh among you and your uh contemporaries for years now if maybe uh Partly because of my ability to remember the poems you've written and poems you wanted to forget that you've written, <laughs> that uh, I'm, I'm somewhat of an authority on your uh, corpus, That's and I've you know I'm one of one of those <laughs> one of those people where mm, maybe I've read a lot. A lot of people have read a lot, but I've read a uh, I read a scatter shot and I'm familiar with a a complete grab bag of things. So uh, I I, uh, have a mix of massive blind spots and very uh, um, niche perspectives or non-blind spots, I should say, along with with uh, along with uh, whatever, having a. Um, attended enough of your readings, readings of other people, uh, uh, um, more well known canonical, uh, modern poets and whatnot. Plus, you've done a reading with me.
0: Uh, you yeah, went, poetry, yeah, you, I we mean, the poetry reading together in Boston if, and you busted an a, a t- a entire suite of poems that I've never if, heard. If the, and heard
1: since. if, um, oh, I'm trying to think of the ancient Greek poesis. If uh, the art of creating, uh, if uh, performing poetry once, uh, if th- that creative act makes you makes you a poet, then then I'm a poet.
0: Does that what, Eleanor? Does one poetry make you poet? Basically,
2: I mean, yeah, kind of. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, what What constitutes a poet is kind of up in the air. We're, We're like,
0: gonna get really into that, I think, today because the person we have to talk about is indeed a poet. Uh, I wrote a paragraph of um, like a copy.
1: Yeah, it's um, that
0: uh, uh, It's an explanation for a podcast. I'm going to read it right now. I want to get your real-time reactions to it. Okay. In this podcast, we will be taking a critical look at the worst excesses of contemporary poetry landscape. From celebrity poetry books, to influencer vanity projects, to Instagram verse, to the flarf, the slam, the outlet, all of it. We'll be reading the cream of the crop of the lowest of the brow. Does that sound? cover? Is that good? Yeah. Is that good, Cotton? <laughs> I mean, that's
1: I, what I we're think it's. Be doing. I think it's good, but also, um, I I don't even think when I was in grad school I used problematize, but to problematize uh, <laughs> your uh, your statement like lowbrow. It's not so much that I have, I, I, it's not that I find that, quote, problematic, unquote. It's that I don't know if any of these people, like, or maybe that's something to discuss. Uh, these authors are presenting themselves or conceiving of themselves as lowbrow. I don't think they conceive of themselves as lowbrow. I think
2: that no, I
0: don't think you have to conceive of yourself as lowbrow to be low. Okay. I feel like also poetry also just like puts you in this like rarefied air. Like you're like, I'm writing poetry. So how could it be lowbrow? But what I would like to figure out is the distinction between highbrow and lowbrow poetry. Maybe that's like the entire project of this podcast, like figuring out what gets to be in. Because like it's the, the obviously
2: whoever was writing the poetry doesn't think of themselves as lowbrow. But if we think of it <laughs> as lowbrow, does that make it automatically lowbrow or just, is that our opinion?
0: yes no we are experts we're you and i we've been doing portrait for like 15 years and and marcus is a uh academic with a wide array of um intellectual um um uh you know um i've lost my turn of thought he's intellectual so,
1: yeah. so <laughs> yeah, god please please scientists. that doesn't i don't want that to be my legacy but go on <laughs> Yeah, uh, being
2: being an intellectual is a horrible legacy to have. <laughs> we are all three intellectuals, and we are going to be swimming through the muck of contemporary I, I, poetry. I'm a retired intellectual. I'm,
1: I'm a guitar I'm guy anymore. <laughs> yep,
0: <laughs> Marcus is a guitar guy. uh For the first episode here, I, I I wanted to pick something that was really like red meat for us, right? Like something that we can really sink our teeth into, and uh. I think with that, we should just transition into talking about Ernest Clyde. Ernest Christie Cline is an American science fiction novelist, poet, and screenwriter. He was born in Ohio and moved to Austin, where, from 1997 to 2002, he performed spoken word poetry as part of the Austin Poetry Slam scene. Klein also comp- uh, competed as part of the Austin Poetry Slam team in the, at the 1998 Austin National Poetry Slam and the 2001 Seattle National Poetry Slam. In 2010, his novel Ready Player One was sold to Random House in a bidding war that ended in a six-figure payout for Klein, along with a movie deal that would eventually develop into a Spielberg film, one that Klein co-wrote. His subsequent novels, 2015's Armada and 2020's Ready Player Two, were successful commercial publications in their own right, both nabbing seven-figure Movie deals, but saw diminishing returns on the critical front because he can't just rely on 80s references and Ready Player
2: 2. He has to rely on character development and story, and he doesn't have any. I mean, admittedly, I haven't read it, but I know what happens in it, and it's not great. It kind of sucks. Of course.
0: What we're really here to talk about is his poetry book, which is called The Importance of Being Earnest. Uh, And uh, what's interesting about this poetry book is that it falls on two points of our timeline, because indeed, while the book was republished by Right Bloody Publishing in 2013 uh, as an attempt to catch some of the hype waves off of uh, Ready Player One, uh, it was originally published in 2001 as a handbound DIY chapbook sold and distributed uh, during his slam poetry years. So I found this really old interview with Ernest Klein, uh, And it's on this... It was on this... Um, defunct website called Entertainment Geekly. And I had to find this through the uh, Internet Archive Wayback Machine. But I found this interview with Ernest Klein from 2003. Um, and, you know, this is before the release of Ready Player One. But after he was doing his slam poetry things. And here's what... We, okay, it's kind of interesting because... It, it, some of his poems... From his uh, from his uh, chat book went viral in this like early two thousands viral way where they were like being emailed around, and I was reading through this um interview with him, uh in Entertainment Geekly. And I guess what I found most interesting about it was a, he kind of talks about to his credit, he doesn't really talk about. He gets asked whether his work is poetry or not, and he says. Uh, uh, I don't think that most academic poets believe that slam adheres to their traditional definition of poetry so they're probably offended that the term poetry is even applied to it Now the uh, the the interviewer led into this question by saying that the Canada's poet laureate at the time talked some shit about slam poetry so I went back and found that. And I found uh, George Bowering, who's the former Poet Laureate of Canada, uh, condemned poetry slams as, quote, abominations that are, quote, (laughs) crude and extremely revolting. (laughs) So uh, what do we think of slam poetry?
2: Well, I will say that I think that's one of slam poetry's strengths uh and <laughs>
0: <laughs> what is what you expect <laughs> the fact that it's revolting
2: yeah that it can be crude and kind of stupid at a lot of times because that's what poetry needs that's like poetry needs an outlet for that i think a lot of poetry is too up its own ass okay but, but
0: you don't actually like slam poetry i
2: don't but <laughs> i'm saying that that is an element of it that i do appreciate
1: still despite me okay, not liking it uh, Marcus, your assessment on slime poetry. I mean, I think it's really dumb, um, <laughs> but I, I, you referencing the Canadian poet laureate is is. Um, uh, Kind of striking because my first uh, encounter, I guess you could say, with slam poetry is whenever uh, Canada hosted the uh, Winter Olympics, they had a slam poet give like, recite some poem about Canada. I don't know if either of you remember <laughs> that, but whenever t- Canada... I definitely ha- don't. Okay, so I don't even like, I wasn't even someone who was eagerly watching the Olympics, but I do remember that a slam poet... Um, uh, delivered a poem where I want, maybe a, we should look this up later, but where he's like, Canada is the new in what's new.
0: Canada is the what in what's new.
2: So don't let your luggage define your travels. Each life unravels differently. And experiences are what make up the colors of our tapestry.
1: <laughs> and um that was my first encounter with um slam poetry and most of my subsequent encounters are just hearsay and secondhand because i i mean lo- revolting is one of my difficult descriptors <laughs> for a wide range of things so i am in an accordance with a aforementioned quoted poet laureate um <laughs> but but i think maybe the harshness of my judgment could be mitigated by how serious or not um and how self-aware or not uh you know slam poets are i don't know i don't i'm not acquainted enough with the quote scene or not acquainted enough with any of the performers yeah
0: i feel kind of ambivalent towards slam poetry personally it's just like it feels like low-hanging fruit to make fun of it and it also feels like people are really vulnerable when they're doing their slam poetry and like maybe it's like not the place to make fun of it well the thing about slam poetry for me i don't want to knock like
2: all of slam poetry because there are there is some stuff out there that i do like but what gets me usually is that the grading aspect like you yeah yeah amazing performances and you just like the judges have to assign scores to them or whatever decide who's his best and that's that just leads to unhealthy practices i think because people know people know what will get you know a reaction from people like emotionally so you just end up with a bunch of like people who know what emotional moments to use in their poems to elicit a reaction from the judges and it just turns into this whole manipulative thing that isn't really yeah. about the poetry necessarily, but it's about trying to perform the poetry in a way that people react to.
0: Trying to juice people's reactions. Trying to get really good. There. Yeah, trying to make people cry a little bit. You know, uh Marcus, our mutual friend Bob sakura used to talk about taking girls to on dates to Poetry Slams. Bobby every, uh,
1: Bobby
0: uh, he <laughs> go, <laughs> go ahead.
1: I know, I mean for if, if we make any references to the poet from uh, from now on it's it's bobby socorro
0: yeah it's true it's bobby socorro and he used to talk about how every time he went to poetry slam there would always be the person who wrote a poem about cancer it would always be the (laughs) winner. yeah it's a go to yeah yeah and you know george Bowering, this former poet laureate of canada when i looked up his his words about (laughs) poetry slams again being abominations and crude and extremely revolting were because is like a contest right it's like makes it into a horse race or something he was like not into that which is like fairly understandable despite despite his like maybe a little too harsh reading of it i don't know but then again poetry slams got us this book that we're about to read which is genuinely the worst poetry book that i've ever read so maybe that's an indictment of the whole of the whole thing yeah but
2: i don't even think that's because of the poetry necessarily
0: what do you mean what the fuck do you mean
2: <laughs> <laughs> well i mean i'm sure we'll get into it when we actually start discussing it but like as a writer like technically as a writer he's not that bad of a writer like he's got some good lines in there he's got good wordplay it's but just
0: he's i'm fascinated by this thing <laughs> he's
2: the problem is he just all of his writing makes him seem like a terrible person
0: The Importance of Being Earnest, which was published by, like I said, Right Bloody Publishing in 2013. Where do you guys want to start with this book? Maybe we should start off by doing, uh, by, by reading a poem from this book, and I think there's only one poem that needs to be read from it. Let's listen to Ernest Cline himself reading Nerd Porn Auteur.
3: Notice that there don't seem to be any porno movies that are made for guys like me. All the porn I've come across was targeted at beer-swilling, sports bar-dwelling alpha males, men who like their women stupid and submissive, men who can only get it up for monosyllabic, cock-hungry nymphos with gargantuan breasts and a three-word vocabulary. Adult films are populated with these collagen-injected, liposuctioned women, many of whom have resorted to surgery and self-mutilation in an attempt to look the way they have been told to look. These aren't real women, they're objects. And these movies aren't erotic, they're pathetic. These vacuum-headed fuck bunnies don't turn me on, they disgust me, and it's not that I'm against pornography, I mean, I'm a guy, and guys need porn. Fact, like a preacher needs pain, like a needle needs a vein, guys need porn. But I don't want to watch this misogynist he-man woman-hater porn, I want porno movies that are made with guys like me in mind. Guys who know that the sexiest thing in the world is a woman who is smarter, than you are. You can have the whole cheerleading squad. I want the girl in the tweed skirt and the horn-rimmed glasses. Betty Finabowski, the valedictorian. Oh yes. First I want to copy her trig homework, and then I want to make mad, passionate love to her for hours and hours until she reluctantly asks if we can stop because she doesn't want to miss Battlestar Galactica. Yeah! She's are a queen laude, baby. That's is what I call erotic. Did you ever see that kind of a woman in a contemporary adult film? No, which is why I'm going to start writing and directing geek porno. I shall be the quintessential nerd porn auteur, and the women in my porno movies will be the kind that drive nerds like me mad with desire. I'm talking about the girls that used to fuck up the grading curve, the girls in the Latin club, the National Honor Society, chicks with weird clothes, braces, four eyes, and 4.0 GPAs, brainy, articulate bookworms with Mensa cards in their purses and chips on their shoulders. My porn starlets will come in all Shapes and sizes. My porn styles will be too busy working on their PhD to go to the gym. In my porn movies, the girls wouldn't even have to get naked. they just take the guys down to the rec room and beat them repeatedly at chess. And then talk to them for hours about Heisenberg's uncertainty principle or the underlying social metaphors in the Aliens movies. Buy stock in some hand cream companies because there's about to be a major shortage. And I'm not just talking about straight porn. Oh, no. There should be fuck films for my nerd brother and of all sexual orientations, gay nerd porn flicks are titles like Dungeons and Drag Queens. This idea is a fucking gold mine. I am going to make millions because this country is full of database programmers and electronics engineers and they aren't getting the loving they so desperately need. And you can help. If you're an intelligent woman who is interested in breaking into the adult film industry, and if you can tell me the name of Luke Skywalker's home planet, then you are hired. It doesn't matter if you think you're overweight or unattractive, it doesn't matter if you don't think you're beautiful. You are beautiful and I will make you a star. Yeah.
0: I mean, are we allowed to keep that in the podcast? Because that's <laughs> that sounds like a copyright nightmare. Okay, first of all, I don't care. What is he going to do? <laughs> Second of all, I hate that poem so much. Yeah, I'm not even well, trying to be hyperbolic. I'm saying that is one of the worst poems I've ever heard. I, I, I've heard worse, but I think. What have you heard worse <laughs> worse than that <laughs> tell me one poem that
2: you've worse that uh I don't know I can't name the specific poems I've been at some pretty fucking bad readings man,
0: no, <laughs> man come on nerd poem tour. uh
2: that's a guess. bad poem look it's the worst poem I've heard that has gotten a lot of recognition I will give you that uh,
1: what about the um <laughs> the slam poem that you once quoted to me that has gone down is kind of like representative of the entire genre of someone saying reality is not what you see it is you and me um and forgot about that one. yeah i i mean i i think it's i think it's bad but so i when i read this i think it took me maybe into like several lines down maybe a couple like a few stanzas into it where i could very much see that okay this i can see that this is uh you know rhythmically would be read out as slam poetry when he says like they're objects and these movies aren't erotic they're pathetic and that in that in some of those lines i can see where um uh i could read it as slam poetry And at some points, um, I mean, aside from the con, I mean, not even making much commentary on the content, which is atrocious. Uh, there are points where I'm just like, this is just like the ranting on like an old angel fire, like nerd site. Um, and then it lapses kind of in and out of kind of rhythmically feeling like slam poetry. Yeah.
2: But I think it's very telling, uh, the kind of reactions that he was getting in those uh, recordings because the crowd was really into it. And, yeah, and I think it speaks volumes to what things were like, you know, in the 90s and in the very early 2000s because the internet wasn't really a big thing back then. And so a lot of these kind of, you know, uh not really these underappreciated communities which i assume included poetry their only outlets for these kind of things were
0: okay this one's saying is like the fucked up thing about this poem is that he thinks he's being feminist well yeah and at the time that was feminist that was like the most feminist you could be in the 90s because it's the
1: fucking <laughs> <of> 90s <laughs>
0: <laughs> it's just like don't worry if you don't think you're a sex object. I think of you as a sex object. We can make but this for, work. But for different reasons than everyone yeah. else. <laughs> yeah. This is what I talked about when, when I brought up Marcus's alternate masculinity things. It's like this this like different version of masculinity where I think different things are hot. But at the end of the day, in my brain, you are doing porno and I am jacking off to you. And just because it's different from the jock reality or whatever means that it's sexually feminist in my brain right but back then a lot of people didn't realize that that
2: was still awful but like compared to you know the jock gorilla brain i want sex version there was like yeah i'll take the nerd version and we get <laughs> that
0: really really sharply in one of the poems called cunning linguistics did you guys read oh that god poem? yeah I did yeah and he just like also a bad poem but <laughs> wretched poem fucking wretched poem uh but like that was that was the mindset back then yeah, make it
1: okay <laughs> i'm not saying it makes it okay i'm saying that's why he got popular i i no i'm probably maybe i i'm like you mentioned maybe i pick low-hanging fruit because i just have so many blind spots in pop culture but all i could associate these things with is um God. the guy that made the clerks movie like it's just really over the it's really over the top like vulgar with some like some aspiration towards being kind of like feminist or kind of subversive at the time but with like a lot of the like i don't know what would be considered energy like of um youth culture at the time yeah Yes. Yeah. No, I mean, I would say Kevin Smith is pretty big. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. That do. guy. That, the yeah, the, the, the clerks guy. I,
0: yes, I, yes. I totally see that. How old do you think he was when he was performing that? Let me uh, frame it this way. How old is it okay to be reading a poem like that? Like <laughs> at what age does that become a problem?
2: I mean, I, I feel like the, the era you were born in decides that question, but uh
0: okay but what age do you think he was reading that poem
2: i think
1: he was mid to late 20s maybe i'm going to say 26 yeah i mean mid- he was 29 okay he was yeah. almost
0: 30 years old reading that poem
2: yeah i mean that doesn't surprise me
0: okay <laughs> just something in my head where it's like i thought he was like 22 or 21 and almost no. that makes it better because you're like okay whatever you're like young or whatever he was 29 he was he was two or three years away from where I am right now in my life, and he was reading that poem about nerd poor amount tour. I hate that. <laughs> I think mean, that's terrible. I want to bring us well, to- Well, that's,
2: that's the thing about geek culture back then because there wasn't the internet and there wasn't any chance to like get a different perspective other than your own, and your own has been beaten down and rejected by the rest of society, so it's a very insular mindset where like
0: the only thing you care about is geek shit. And here's the thing. 15 years later, he's co-writing a Spielberg, Spielberg, <laughs> Spielberg movie. <laughs>
2: yeah. Spielberg movie. Because yeah, he, he managed did. to write a book that people like for some reason.
0: And because geek culture took over and won the entire fucking yeah, cultural <laughs> in,
1: entire The culture award. Big love letter. <laughs> to culture. culture.
0: The console wars. He wrote the console wars. Okay,
2: but okay. I guess what what I was what I was trying to say is that like, if he read those poems now, he would be laughed out of whatever fucking venue he was reading. I think it. you're because right. I
0: think you're right. It's cringe as hell to to quote the kids. Uh, but <laughs> also, I really hate when he's like, "If you can tell me what Luke Skywalker's home planet is, it's like what yeah. fucker doesn't know what Luke Skywalker's home planet is." That's not but, the nerd back, but <laughs> back in the nineties. That was rare to know. Like, <laughs> don't buy that. I think my mom in the '90s knew where, like, could name a couple planets from Star Wars.
2: Like, I, but I, he's talking about people his age that he could yeah. like, talk to about, especially like uh, girls, because for I a lot of guys like in guy. the '90s, they didn't meet girls who were into that kind of shit because they didn't have the internet and they had no way to fucking know. There was <laughs> there was no I love science page. No, exactly. <laughs> there's no, no I love science on
0: Facebook where you can meet I'm girls. Not-
2: and I'm not saying it's right, but that's just how things were back then. So, like, I understand why he wrote, like, all this shit was written in the 90s. So, I understand
0: that kind of... One of the things that really came through reading this book was, like, his intense bitterness towards, like, the, like all the poems are really angry at jocks. This is a 29-year-old man who's really angry at jocks. Like, there's something really sad about that to me, and I think... Okay, I want to take us to the cunning linguistics poem. There's something about this poem in particular that really just like makes me reminds me of being on Reddit when I was like 14. <laughs> well,
2: yeah, this is basically the 90s equivalent
1: of trying to flirt with strangers on the air. I have to say that yeah. the line but there are those among my brethren enlightened enough is very much an early adumbration of like good evening, fellow redditors.
0: Yes, that's exactly what I'm talking about. There's like such a Reddit vibe, like this is a like proto Reddit vibe to this whole thing. Like, like I don't know. There's like a trajectory you can follow here from this in 2001 to like Reddit festering for like 10 years to like where we are now. Well, yeah, Reddit is just a <laughs> digital version of this same thing. Reddit is just a bunch
2: it's like an insular community of like-minded people. I suppose now and that we're that's talking what about a it. lot of things were in the 90s, especially the poetry community. Because like, who the fuck cared about poetry in the 90s? No one except for poets.
1: What were you saying Oh, yeah, now I mean now that uh I mean, Lenore's kind of highlighted like uh um the time uh the the micro the micro era generation that this this sprang from i mean i don't wanna I, i i don't know if i want to call it um i guess i can understand why it'd be more fresh because i guess i'd associate this with like 2000 and like late 2000s read it or something but i mean it was well before that so even if it's like very very like painful to get through it and painful to conceive of like i i could see it being fresh at the time do you do either of you want to take us to a
0: particular poem marcus do you have a poem that that in this collect in this collection that
1: i should say that um I am uh, referring again to my initial reaction that I brought up with uh, the clerks guy (laughs) is that I don't I mean maybe I've voiced it to you before uh, but I just never liked comics in any way and at least in the uh publication or this uh edition that i'm referencing it has like these comic drawings and it makes a lot more sense with those but it makes me hate it a lot more because i just don't like (laughs) comics or graphic novels i'm just very (laughs) i'm very much uh like words and then some words uh i i well can you describe some of these
0: comic drawings for our listeners like So what Marcus is talking about is that this particular publication that came out in 2013 through Write Bloody, they uh, appended some uh, illustrations to uh, to each of these poems. Yeah, I don't know enough
1: (laughs) about, like, comics and, uh, like, the styles or history of uh, comic art to describe them, but, I mean, it's completely what you'd expect with, like, with... uh art style that would spring from like reddit sentiments um i i I should say that they at least accompany it well that they're like hyperbolic i mean maybe all comics are and um angry and very very explicitly kind of highlighting that these are nerd subjects like look guys with glasses um (laughs) (laughs) um that look kind of awkward uh so i think that going into this relatively blind it actually allowed me to uh understand what what uh what this author was trying to do i do have to say that i also don't like the majority of sci-fi so i like a lot of the Battlestar Galactica or whatever stuff is like lost on me. (laughs) Like, I maybe maybe that's more niche. I don't know. Is it more? It seems more niche than Star Wars because I know stuff about Star Wars and I don't really like sci fi things or Star Trek or whatever. Um, offending people by grouping all those things as like starship media. They're always, um, (laughs) but uh, yeah, I mean, I think. Drawing on a really limited um bag of illusions, but maybe yeah, but yeah, I mean that's a sign of the times that there was just this really condensed uh like set of chivalists that were floating around at that time, like, oh Luke Skywalker, but <laughs> that's so that's so just like commonplace now. I don't think the drawings are necessarily like bad
2: But for me, it's very weird to have a bunch of kind of, like, cutesy drawings depicting all the, like, hateful shit that he spews in all of these poems.
0: The book is, like, so porn-brained and so hateful. All of the things that I look for in poetry is, like, I look for, like, empathy and I look for, like, some sort of connection with a human being. And this just, like repulses me like it just like makes me feel like less less in communion with my common man with the common man you know what i mean
2: yeah because he doesn't he doesn't want to be in communion with a common man all he cares about is other geeks and it's very apparent in these poems and yeah. I feel like that's understandable for the time that he grew up in because the rest of humanity told him to fuck off. So, like, I get why it's like that. But at the same time, it's very repulsive because it's not really a mindset you want to be in. Yeah, I I agree. I agree. And, like, I mentioned it earlier, but, like, I don't think these poems are necessarily bad. Like, his, he's not a bad writer. Like, the the writing, the minute-to-minute writing, the structure of his poems, like... It's not bad. Like, he knows what he's okay. doing. He knows he knows how to
0: structure things to get
2: yeah, the yeah, most yeah.
0: effect. There was one line that I really liked. One part that I thought was really funny was in this poem called Curriculum Vitae.
1: That's also one that I, I could say uh, <laughs> something positive about, but go on, August.
0: Okay, I, like, structurally get this, and I get how this would work at a live reading. It's this poem that's structured like, oh, the things you say during a job interview, right? There's mm-hmm. like so much room for hyperbole there. Like, I totally see how the scenario presented in the poem opens itself up to like a pretty good slam poem or whatever. And one of the funnier lines was when he says, "I am not now, nor have I ever been a homosexual, but I'm willing to learn." That's yeah. where he should have ended the poem. That that should have been the end of the poem. Right? He goes there... for two more pages. <laughs> no one to cut it off.
3: Well,
2: like, that no yeah, does. that's that another is... another thing about this book is that he definitely goes on like for way too long in a lot of these poems. But also the way the book is structured, it just cuts off a lot of poems like halfway through the page and then continues like the next page afterwards after some image. And like you think the poem ends there because there's this weird break, but it's like no, it actually keeps going. And it's yes. like the the first, the very first poem is like that for me because he's talking. To, it's like when it's called "When I Was a Kid," and he's talking about how like kids these days wouldn't survive back in the '80s or whatever. But that poem has a really weird break where he's talking about video games and Ataris, and it, it goes, uh, it ends on or the page ends on there were no multiple levels or screens it was just one screen forever and you could never win and i thought that's actually a kind of cool way to end a poem but then it, like the next page it just keeps going and like is it
0: gets worse from there and i was like yes. i really didn't need that one of the most valuable things i ever learned from my workshops when i was working with Lloyd Schwartz was cut out the last stanza of your poem and see if it's better. And like this one, it's like cut out four stanzas of your poem and see if it's better. And it always is because he's just in rant brain. It's like totally that, but that
2: lends to the slam poetry mindset (laughs) (laughs) because because it just gives you more opportunities to earn points with the judges.
1: I do agree that it should have been shorter. um, And that, for the genre it has its merits and at least in in terms of the content he's talking about the uh like i can take constructive criticism i keep my workspace tidy like i mean those observations are like less dated because everyone wants to be everyone still has to be a team player and open to new technologies or whatever the hell um people are supposed to say um and uh, he i think pulls off well the like hickory dickory dock the most run up the clock rhythm of uh of like slam poetry uh in in this particular poem so for what it is it's uh the most Mm, mo- yeah, probably the most successful out of the ones I read at doing what it's yeah, at I doing what it's that. trying to do.
0: Yeah, I would agree with that. I thought one, when- Merlin, be quiet. You ever see him?
2: Um, <laughs> in Austin, yeah, I have actually seen him a few times, but I've never talked to him.
0: Let's go to his house and tell him that he's fucked up with this book What's up? Okay, also, I want to say what the fuck was Wright Bloody doing publishing this in 2013? Okay, wait, no, that brings me to another point.
1: There is a prison rape in this.
0: You don't oh talk you yeah, that.
1: no, yeah. There is definitely a reference to prison, right? I mean, I think it is that maybe. Are you? I think that line might be in the one about Jesus. Yeah, like that's Buck the ben Messiah. That's the Jesus roommate one. <laughs> yeah, that that one would qualify as a <laughs> as a big yikes,
0: <laughs> <laughs>
1: yikes. Yeah, I'd say that qualifies. I mean,
0: let me. I'm trying to find that one so we can read it, part of it. It's, I think it's the
2: one before Nerd Porn Artur.
0: Want to read the first just like stanza of that, Eleanor? Yeah, it's not great.
2: <laughs> the second semester of my sophomore year at college, I shared my dorm room with Jesus Christ. And I think I can honestly say that I wasn't the least bit trepidatious about sharing my dorm room with a foreign exchange student. Because I figured that anything had to be better than my last roommate who was a dim-witted, misogynistic, knuckle-dragging, football-playing business-slash-physical education major whom I had considered killing in his sleep on several occasions just to get him out of my room, out of my life, and out of the gene pool. But luckily, he was now serving 5 to 15 years on three counts of date rape at a Cincinnati correctional facility where, if there is any justice, he is being sodomized on hourly shifts.
0: What? Okay. Okay. Here's what I have to say about that. First of all, okay, if you wrote this in two thousand one, not not it's not okay. No But if you're but if you're republishing this in two (laughs) thousand thirteen, you're right bloody publishing and you're republishing this? You're republishing the rape line? Yeah, I mean well I'm sure he was
2: trying to be feminist because you know, oh he was a date rapist, so obviously he deserves to be raped, etc. But that's that's (laughs) not no, no, it's not.
1: But that I'm sure that was his mindset. Yeah, at the time. yeah. I mean, that's that's logical I, if not reasonable.
0: I don't. I don't want to like put lines on this where it was okay at a certain time and not okay at a certain time. 2001, though, okay, maybe I slightly understand this impulse. Right. 2013, did not cut that. What is? I mean, yeah. <laughs> I don't understand.
2: Yeah, I, I I agree. I, I don't know about that one. Um, but yeah, I really, I really can't say honestly, although I will say he is dating or married to one of the editors of Right Bloody. So that probably has something to do with it. She should know better. She should know better. (laughs) You would think so,
1: but. I have a oh, lot of blind spots. Should have been relegated to the status of like juvenilia to be forgotten. Um <laughs> yes. uh, and yeah, it's pro I mean, the the one that poem you're referencing, um what it is it's uh if I'm sorry, what is the title of that one?
0: Uh, of that one? That one is the The bottom bottom. Yeah, that one yeah.
1: I think in the in the form and the content, it's just like a a lot of the excesses that we've mentioned, Um, whereas uh, the curriculum Vitae one kind of uh, does something with, you know, the form that he's working with and I think succeeds at it. This one is more so like reading it aloud or reading it on the page. It's just like a rant, but not in the, not even in the spoken word style. It's just like meandering from from like bad illusion to bad illusion and then it ends and it's like, oh, it's, there's some shock factor for you, but it's not even like that shocking. It's just pretty gross.
0: So, as I was researching this book, I found a really nice website, actually. And let me see if I can pull that up. Now, I want to give a little shout-out to the Performance Poetry Preservation Project, also known as P4. And this is a website where someone or a group of people have gone to great lengths to archive a great amount of uh, slam poetry-related stuff, especially from the late 90s and early 2000s. And I think that's very thankless work. And what I find... There's a number of poems that didn't make it to the right bloody version. So what I did was I found someone on eBay who was actually selling a copy of the original chapbook from 2001. So I lied to this guy on eBay and he sent me some pictures of some of the poems that were cut from this book. And the, the, the two poems that he sent me, um, uh, sent me were a poem called 2 AM Again and a poem called the skywalkers of hazard huh. The skywalkers of hazard is just another boring bullshit geek poem it's about how the luke skywalker is similar to the dukes of hazard that's the entirety <laughs> of the poem it's not it's not particularly good or interesting
1: right but
0: if we look at this poem called 2am again i want to read this poem because uh here's what, what's interesting to me is that this poem that was cut from the republication is better than any poem in the collection.
2: Okay, interesting. Oh, well, I did see. It. I want
0: to get. I want to get both
1: of your opinion of it. You you saw it in the Google Drive link? Yes, there. and it looked it did. Uh, I'm on my skim. I'm like, yeah, this is out of place. Yes. Okay. I'll read it. Actually, Marcus, would you like to read this one? Yes. I. I, can't, I can I can. 2 a.m. again, the remnants of my earliest childhood memory. I'm about three years old with this horrible earache that has me in the worst pain of my young life. And as you know, when you're a child and you're in pain, the pain is all there is, all that you are aware of. And I screamed and screamed like the world was going to end, screamed because it hurt so bad that it scared the hell out of me, screamed loud enough to wake the neighbors at 2 a.m., with the relentless abandon of a child who has yet to learn the adult art of restraint or to acquire the skill of hiding pain. So I lay there, wailing on the kitchen floor with my head in her lap, and she is the clearest image in this memory for me, the familiar icon of mother stroking my hair, wincing at each scream and whispering the words of comfort that all mothers seem to inherently know as I wailed my way towards the sunrise. And in a blink, it's more than two decades later, and now her head is in my lap, and she doesn't have any hair left for me to stroke. And I know that she's in the worst pain of her entire life, but she doesn't make a sound, doesn't show it. Instead, she is whispering apologies for keeping me up all night, telling me to call the hospice nurse and get some rest. And... And I want to remind her of that night, I had the earache, or of a dozen others just like it. But instead, I just collapse again into muttering, I love you, over and over, a voice cracking chant. And though it could, it could make up for all the years of distance, guilt, and accusations that I had turned my back on both my God and my family, as though it could somehow make up for decades of being a less than perfect son, And I can admit now that at that moment she died, I resented the pastor's presence there in the room. And while the rest of my family took comfort in assuring each other that she was now in a heaven I had never seen any evidence of with a God that I had never been able to make myself believe in. All I could feel was this crushing loss like lead in my throat. And then teeth grinding rage at the mere mention of God and all. In this of all moments when my mother and everything she was is just gone. And I want to believe in him now more than ever to give my anger a focus because if God does exist, then he is the author of all this, of cancer, of long drawn out deaths, devoid of hope or dignity, filled with the empty promise of some gold plated white marble afterlife where lives don't have to end and nothing is lost when someone dies. But for myself, I could never reconcile the existence of a kind and benevolent deity with the image I have of her lying there on the bed, almost a skeleton, clutching a Bible. And I was young enough until then to think that there might someday be answers or reasons, but I aged enough in that one night to realize that there, that there is is the self-indulgent act of grief, and then maybe someday acceptance, but at that moment... Grief. And so, like the child I was, oblivious to all, I open up and scream like the world is going to end. Scream because it hurts so bad. It scares the hell out of me. Scream loud enough to wake the neighbors at 2 a.m. Wow. Thank you for reading that.
0: Okay. Why is that better than every poem in the actual republished collection?
2: Well, I mean, it's the only poem that gives us some insight is into, like, kind of person that he is and what he's gone through other than just like beyond you know like geek shit and anger (laughs) even though that poem is all about just like his anger (laughs) in his grief but like yeah it's the only poem that feels real like in that collection the only poem that really feels like we're kind of getting to know him
0: and that he's not just ranting i completely agree marcus why do you think it wouldn't fit
1: And do you think he should have included it anyway? Um, Probably not. I mean, I don't think it, I don't think it fits. (laughs) I don't think that it would be included like in a publication um, like where, because it would make the rest of it so incoherent because it, it does have some humanity in it, and <laughs> and so because the repet like w- like again, um, I I've kind of just been developing this while uh, while we've been speaking about these poems, and because it's really my first encounter with a lot of this stuff aside from hearing some slam poetry here and there. That he again that. Um, he, he harnesses the form of like the slam of slam poetry better here. Uh probably than any of the others we read, maybe equally to the to the C V poem. And then like his use of repetitions and all that and the cadence of it is just more successful. And it's about something that not, like doesn't make me repulsed like actually yeah, it's like well, that... it's like really fitting. it's like really fitting like the 2 a.m thing i'm like oh that's 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 actually it uh, it's a good imagery and like it works really well but like when it's i was a
2: successful reading... poem yeah but when reading this poem all i can think of is the anecdote you shared earlier august about like the guy who took dates to the poetry readings there was always someone who talked about cancer like, <laughs> like it kind of feels a little bit manipulative when thinking about it in the slam poetry mindset but it's like him writing is like okay time to do my like tenderness ballad right there is that but also i feel like the reason it wasn't included be- it was because they were trying to capitalize off of uh is ready player one success and so they wanted the book to be more about you know relating to yeah the and i culture. think
0: marcus is right that it doesn't
2: yeah no it doesn't it's
0: it's it's also better than any of the poems
2: it's true yeah they should have just written more i mean i don't want to tell people what they should have shouldn't or shouldn't have done because obviously like he's a successful rich person and i'm not uh but like i think that poem is better than all of the other ones and i think that stuff more in that vein would appeal to me
0: Yeah, totally it seems like a real person it doesn't seem like some sort of cliche
2: monster. yeah It doesn't feel like a hateful gremlin just with <laughs> trying to stab Jocks in their sleep or whatever.
1: Yeah, it was 29 and <laughs> who's still thinking
0: about Jocks, knuckle dragging Jocks in the high school image? Yeah, it felt well, thank like. Thank you a for real... reading that, Marcus. I thought that was really good reading. Um, I just want to say it's so funny to contrast that with the other unreleased poem that I got, Skywalkers of Hazard," which is just about Job of the Hutt being Boss Hog. <laughs> <laughs>
2: I don't think we need to read that one
0: yeah those recordings of it online that that one is that one is not le- not as unreleased so what, one thing I was curious about is um whether or not um, or I, I guess I was curious about if this book sold um so I got the sales data from the UK but the US sales data they asked for 75 dollars for and I did not pay for. How many copies do you think the importance of being earnest by earnest client sold in the United Kingdom total
2: that's tough I don't know what the market is like uh... <laughs> is that like up to
0: like today like recent years it's up to the is up to when I sent this email which was in April <laughs> uh... I'll throw a
1: figure out. Yeah, 75,000.
2: 75,000. That's way more than I was thinking. I was thinking like 10,000. You're going to go 10,000? I was going to go with 10,000.
0: According to our records, which are based on sales data from approximately 7,000 UK book uh, retail outlets in the UK, Ernest Klein's The Importance of Being Ernest
1: has sold just 500 copies. Wow. (laughs) 500 (laughs) copies since publication. Okay. Wow, I I will tell, I guess what I was thinking of like distribution to stores and I was, I was gearing up for like a huge figure because again, um, kind of showing my ignorance. I'm like this, maybe this would be like sold at some, like, (laughs) I don't even know what these things are called, like Comic-Con event or something. And in which case, (laughs) like it ends up in the hands of like. Ten thousand people over the course of like a weekend. So I thought, I, yeah, that's that. That no, explains. No, that's a fair assumption. Yeah. I mean,
0: the five hundred figure really surprised me because his, according to the same person, Ready Player One sold more than a hundred thousand copies. Okay. Oh
2: yeah, Ready Player One is like one of the most popular books. It's like ridiculous. Five hundred is abysmal.
0: Let's be honest here. Yeah. One hundred over like ten years. That's abysmal. Yeah. I I sold more copies of my Mario Kart 64 book in two years.
2: Yeah, it's not great, especially if you have a book that has sold a hundred thousand copies. Like, that's not great. Yeah. I mean that's I yeah. Think that that's, speaks. I, I think that speaks to kind of how repulsive his poems are that no one wants to pick this shit up.
0: We should go to his house. We live in the same city as him. We should go to his house and ask him to answer I, for these. I, I, I have not. No. No,
2: you know the police are going <laughs> to refer to this podcast when something <laughs> <laughs> happens, so I'm
0: not going to a, to anything. I, they, uh, We will go to his house. We're on nope. our way. No, nope. don't um, say um, that. I'm this. not going with you. Do not I'm not,
2: not we're going coming with you. The, we're, com- we're already if, there. If anything happens, I'm not involved. Knock, knock. I'm not doing this. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Let's meet on Ernest Klein's door. We're let, gonna it be stated why why your let it be
2: stated for the record that I stayed home. I am not doing this.
0: Uh, well you know I think we covered this book pretty well um I, I I really
1: like our discussion about it um final thoughts I could have gone without reading it <laughs> uh, but but uh, it's just... <laughs> i don't know i don't know if i if it brought in my perspective at all uh my final thoughts was again uh recapitulating the idea that oh uh, it's hard to believe that this is a thing but i guess it wasn't a thing if it only sold 500 copies
2: um yeah i don't know it's not a great book that i kind of honestly it just makes me sad like I like not even like I mean like sincerely in a sincere way like I hate that like things back then were so bad that he turned into such a hateful and like repulsive person inside like it sounds like it sucks like I wouldn't want to live like that I don't mean I kind of do live like that it sucks but like
0: I'm not that hateful even I'm not that hateful and like I don't I don't know yeah it's just kind of sad I really wanted to start at the at the rock bottom. I feel like we started at a rock bottom. Yeah, I would say so.
1: I I think it's pretty rock bottom, and I also think that, like, the conversation and commentary generated by it is by... We're, we're like, forced to talk about the shock factor, like, these 90s cultural <laughs> aspects, because there's so little to grab onto, Um
0: yeah. Yes. There's very little <laughs> substance to it.
2: Yeah, it's just there's not there's not much going there's not much going on Guys,
1: <laughs> It's just like
2: it's only a thing because of slam poetry. And that's I feel like being generous.
1: Too. Yeah. Yeah. I think it can only go up from here in terms of material that we're going to be discussing and evaluating.
0: Well, thank you so much
1: for both of you for joining me.
0: This was enlightening as it was revolting to read those poems. And um, I'm glad he only sold 500 copies. Uh, thank you for everyone who tuned in. Have a good night. And now for Marcus's Napoleon Minute, or as the French might call it, Minute Napoleon.
1: If I have a minute or less to dedicate to a Napoleon-related topic, I guess I can talk about how ubiquitous he is because in two completely unrelated things I've been reading recently, he came up uh, in a book uh, by the philosopher Simone Weil. She turns a uh, commonly used uh, uh, comparison on its head and rather than calling something literally Hitler she says no Hitler is Bonaparte and a second completely unrelated reference w- is when the poet Marina Tsvetaeva um, says something about people not being of a century that they are a sanctuary and that um, Napoleon wasn't the 18th century at uh, the 19th century the 19th century was Napoleon or Maybe it's the other way around. But in any case, um with my time dwindling, I really wish there were poems about people in his inner circle like Jean Lan, the marshal in general, or Prince Eugene de Beauharnais, his stepson. Maybe they are, in which case I need to do some homework. <laughs>